I wonder if you have ever experienced the joy of discovery that just takes your breath away, that just takes your breath away. You see something you've never seen before, something wonderful. I recall the very first time I was driving up the Highway 1 on the California coast and coming around the corner to Big Sur, and my breath was taken away. I mean, I have pictures of it, but you know things like this, pictures never seem to do it justice. The the plunging cliff, the high mountains up behind us, the foaming sea down below. It was amazing. And while I can recall my first sighting of Big Sur, I've been back several more times because every time I'm in California, I like to go and see what I had once saw. And I find that every time I go, I have delight. Every new visit brings new waves of delight. Even though it's something I have seen and beheld before, it still stirs my heart. Maybe something is seen that wasn't quite seen the last time, or the weather is different, so things are lit differently than they were before. Each time my heart is filled with joy and with wonder. The reason I was in California in the first place was to go to school. I was in seminary there, and I can remember in my early days of study coming across the, what's called the attributes of God as we sort of look at God and, and parcel out certain characteristics about him, his grace, his love, his mercy, but also those attributes of his great transcendence, that which makes him entirely different than us. And I can remember thinking about his eternality, the fact that God is eternal. That was a little bit like standing on the California coastline looking at Big Sur. I was humbled and overjoyed all at the same time. Of course, it was nothing like standing on the California coastline looking at Big Sur because we're talking here about God, about a person. And really, we're just hovering about the edges of his greatness and his glory. And the true study of God is always like this. Nothing fuels delight in God like studying the person of God. Nothing fuels delight in God like studying the person of God. Morris Roberts put it this way, the practice of fixing our thoughts on God till our hearts are strangely warmed is the best bliss we can ever experience on this side of eternity. I couldn't agree more. And so what I want to do today is warm our cold hearts by considering the eternality of God. I've been preaching the last few months on this idea, this concept of delighting in God. I want to show you one way in which it's done, which is by taking our microscope and zooming in very closely on just one aspect of God, of his nature, of his character. It's a little bit like taking a diamond and Well, I haven't held a lot of dimes, especially ones that would fit in my hand the way I'm currently holding my hand, but imagine I am. Here, here's the diamond. And and, and as you take that diamond, you turn it about, so I've been told every turn of the diamond gives new appreciation for what it is in its whole. And so I'm going to turn the diamond about a little bit this morning and begin by thinking about what it means for God to be eternal. Here's... um, one explanation uh, given by Stephen Charnock, which is to the, speaking about the eternality of God. Here's what he said. God is his own eternity. 
The eternity of God is nothing else but the duration of God, and the duration of God is nothing else but his existence enduring. The duration of God. Okay, that helps us a little bit. But sometimes saying what a thing is not is a helpful way to explain what it is. So let me say what we're not talking about. A couple of things we don't mean when we're talking about the eternality of God. We do not mean the same thing as you and me who are believers in Jesus having eternal life. The Bible uses that phrase, eternal life. The fundamental difference between you and God is that God had no start, no beginning. And even though you will last eternally in this sense, there was a time you did not exist. That's not true with God. There is never a time God did not exist. He has no beginning. He has no start. So when we speak about the eternality of God, we have to think of it in slightly different terms than the way we would speak about our eternal life. I'll show you in a moment how the Bible teaches this, but you just, right from the get-go, it's really helpful to have in your head, God has no start. He has no finish, of course, but he has no beginning. The second thing we don't mean when we speak about the eternality of God is that God is really, really old. Some of the kids are thinking, oh, you must be talking about you, Pastor Paul. No, God is not really, really old because unlike us, God exists, get this, outside of time. And that means that when we speak of God's eternality, we're not talking about a long chain of successive moments. That's what our eternal life is, a long chain of successive moments, successive moments that never come to an end. But God exists outside of time. He created time for us. And when we say that God is eternal, we're not suggesting that God is really, really, really old. God relates to time in ways that are very different from us. So right from the get-go, God's eternality is unique to him alone. All right? That's what's important to see. This is only true about God, not true about you. It's not true about anything else in his creation. It is only true about God. Kid, kids, let me ask you, do you like parades? Put your hand up if you like parades. You like parades? Yes, I like parades as well. Imagine you go to a parade. This is kind of a helpful way of understanding the eternality of God. So we're going to try and understand how the timeless God relates to time in human history. A parade. Here we go. When you stand on the sidewalk as the parade goes by, you see each float, each marching band in its progression, right? That's like our experience of time. One moment follows after another. But if the man who's standing there watching that parade decides to go into the office tower right behind him and take the elevator all the way to the top and he gets out on the roof and he looks down, let's imagine for a moment that he can see the entire parade at once. The beginning and the end. 
He sees the succession of floats and bands and clowns and everything in a parade. He sees all of that as one thing. If that parade represents the entire history of time, we might see that God sees all of history, all events of time, past, present, and future, in their succession, equally vivid and present to his consciousness all at once. You and I can only ever be the guy on the sidewalk watching for and waiting to see each thing pass. God sees it all as one, as if that parade was all of human history. Now, don't press the details of this example too far. All I want you to do now is just be considering how God is distinct from time, and that's at the heart of what it means for him to be eternal. If you haven't turned there yet, in your song sheet, I've put all the scripture references, and I'm going to read a bunch of different quotations, because I think they're really useful. If you've been to the foundations class where I talk about the eternality of God, some of these will be familiar, but they're so golden, I want everybody to see them. So they're right there, and you can just follow along, and you can read them all. Let me read you something from somebody who's way smarter than me, named Louis Burkhoff, and this is what he said about the eternality of God. Our existence, as humans, is marked off by days and weeks and months and years, not so the existence of God. Our life is divided into a past, present, and future, but there's no such division in the life of God. He is the eternal I am. His eternity may be defined as that perfection of God whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits and all succession of moments and possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. This relation of eternity to time constitutes one of the most difficult problems in philosophy and theology, perhaps incapable of solution in our present condition. And you're like, dude, if it's incapable of solution, why are we thinking about it? Because sometimes the things that are most difficult to grasp are the most rewarding. God has revealed his eternality to us. He has given us scriptures that teach us these things, and he does it in a way where he takes the things that he has created and relates himself to those things in a way to show us that he's different. And as you begin to see this difference of God's eternality, I think your happiness in him will grow. So let's look at some of these words and allusions. We're taking the diamond now, and we're going to turn it seven times. Here's the first turn of the diamond, and let's see if our happiness increases. Number one, God is timeless in his own being. This is Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses holds up two points, everlasting and everlasting. And he says that God is God, unchanging in all his perfections, from this everlasting to that everlasting. But the trouble trouble with that is that everlasting is not a point, is it? (laughs) They're not two everlastings. 
From eternity to eternity, you are God. It's not like you can plot one eternity uh, on one end of the line and and the other eternity on the other end of the line. That's not how it works. In fact, if we're talking about lines at all, you have to conceive of God as being a line that has no beginning and has no end. (laughs) Which I don't know about your brain, but mine can't figure that out. So Moses holds up these two points of reference here and calls each one eternal. Everlasting here, everlasting there. One eternity on both ends. That's beginning to hint at the fact that we can't conceive of God as existing in time in the same way that we do. To be in time in this sense would require God to have a start and and, and to live in this sort of progression of moments. God is everlasting though. God is eternal. That's one little turn of the diamond. Starting to see it. Let's turn it again. Number two, God's perfections are independent of time. So is who he is. This is independent of time. This is Jude 24. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, and, and you'll see why, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, you'll know why, to the only God, our Savior, Through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So God's glory, majesty, dominion, and authority existed before there was time, before all time. This is who God was. These qualities of God, therefore, are independent of what he has created. God being himself does not depend on God making worlds or nations or people. God does not develop. He doesn't doesn't grow as a person. This is who God is. He is is glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Who God is in and of himself remains constant and true regardless of the things outside of himself. God is timeless. He is eternal. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority have always been and always will be his. Hold that in your mind and turn the diamond with me a third time. God's names reveal his eternality. The Bible tells us that God has names, sometimes a generic name like Elohim, just kind of what everybody used for God, their version of God. El Shaddai, specific to the God we serve, the God Almighty. And then, of course, the most revealing name, Yahweh, the name that he gave himself when he entered into covenant with his people Israel. Let's think about that name for a moment. Remember Moses uh, in front of the burning bush is told by God to go and, and get the people out of Egypt. And this is what he asked the Lord. This is Exodus 3.13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, that's a name, I am has sent me to you. I am. I am who I am. Yahweh. Uh, Anglicized in the old King James as Jehovah. Same word. Notice God says, my name is I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. God's very name is teaching his eternal nature. 
God is always now. Wilhelmus Abrockel wrote, I am defines a being for whom the past, present, and future are a simultaneous and concurrent reality. He is the one who is, who was, and who shall be. So to go back to our parade illustration, God is on the top of the tower. He's distinct from the parade, and he's observing the parade as one completed whole. Now I want to pause here for a second because it's worth just thinking about this. Jesus also took this name to himself of I am. In John chapter 8, the religious leaders of the day are are chasing down Jesus and accusing him of all kinds of things like being demon-possessed. And Jesus, on his part, is very willing to reveal to them what he was like, who he was, and pointing out to them how they had missed these things in their own reading of their own Bible. And at one point, he says to the religious leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham's been dead for a really long time. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, here it comes, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So what Jesus does here is remarkable. He takes the name Yahweh, I am, to himself. He says it in Greek, ego eimi, I am, I myself am. But they knew exactly what he was saying. How do we know that? Because of verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why'd they want to throw stones on him? You throw stones on people who are blaspheming. And they understood that by saying, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus was taking upon himself the eternality of God. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be eternal. Since we're thinking about Jesus, let me show you something else about our triune God, Father, Son, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. This takes the fourth turn of the diamond, number four. The triune God is eternal. So I don't want you to conceive of, well, God the Father is eternal, and Jesus is like eternal light, and the Holy Spirit is, we don't know. No, no, no. (laughs) So just listen to these verses. This is what, uh, I'm in now the revelation given to Jesus, which he then gave to John, last book in your New Testament. And in Revelation 21, 6, the Father is speaking, and he says, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In the very next chapter, chapter 22, verse 13, the Son, Jesus, is speaking, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So you have the Father saying this, and you have the Son saying this. Well, what are they doing? Are they vying for the title? I'm the Alpha and the Omega. No, I'm the Alpha and Omega. <laughs> no, that's not what's going on here at all, right? They are expressing their unity, their oneness. This is a Trinitarian formulation. Both Father and Son are saying, I am. I am Alpha and Omega. First letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the Greek alphabet. This is why it says Alpha, Omega, first and last, beginning and end. This is a wonderful example for you. Uh, The next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, how is it that Jesus can say this and the Father can say this if Jesus isn't God? Because the Jehovah's Witness would say, Jesus is not God. 
The Father and Son are eternal. We might add, thanks to Ricky on Friday, he pointed this out to me, Hebrews 9.14, the eternal spirit. Uh, in Hebrews 9.14, talks about the spirit being eternal. So you've got Father, Son, and Spirit, all eternal. But what I want you to catch here is that in reference to our understanding of time, the triune God is. He exists in total perfection at the start of time and at the end of time, as we know time. He was exactly the same from everlasting to everlasting. He has not progressed. He has not regressed. That's affirmed by Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The person who is and was and is to come is none other than I am, Yahweh, the name God attributed to himself when he enters into this covenant with Israel, and this name distinguishes God quite clearly as the eternal God. There was never and never will be a time that God was not. And that's precisely why your Bible begins with this verse. In the beginning, the start of time, God, who was already there, created the heavens and the earth. All that is natural, all that is supernatural. All that exists had a beginning, had a starting point, except for God. God was just there. He existed, and then he created. And part of what God created was time. That's why Paul can say about Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, this is Colossians 1.16. Just think about what he's saying about Jesus. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, this is Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is why the author to the Hebrews says Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13.8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What we mean here is that Jesus Christ in his divine nature, in his essential deity, is eternal. John really helpfully unpacks this for us in his gospel. You remember he begins in John 1.1, these familiar words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word here referring to Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. So what do we see? See, John 1 1. Jesus was in the beginning. Christ was with God, meaning he was separate, distinct from the Father. And he was God. He is in every respect divine. Which means that the eternality, which is part of what it means to be God, was true of Christ. In taking on human flesh, Jesus became subject to time in his humanity, but not in his divine nature. John 1.14, the word became flesh. That's like the man on the top of the tower deciding to come down the elevator, ground floor. Now he's walking out to engage with the parade at a certain 
point in its progression. He becomes a part of the progression of events and interacts with them in real time. This is Christ in his humanity. He, Christ in his humanity did experience the progression of, of time, but at no point in his divinity is this so. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not suggesting that's easy to understand, but I'm suggesting it's worth your pondering. You're very humble pondering. Again, the writer to the Hebrews, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Interesting that he begins that chapter that way. It's by faith. You weren't there. You didn't see the creation. You're not eternal in the way God is eternal. You don't, you, there's no eyewitnesses to that. It's just by faith. That's the only way you can believe that, that God created everything. And we do. Happily so, because God has revealed it to us in his word. That's the reason why my parade illustration begins to, if you, if you start thinking like too many details, it just starts falling apart because we're trying to use something very limited and, and it's a parade for Pete's sake and, and trying to explain God. It, it fails at a certain point. I'm just trying to help you understand that God is beyond us. God can't be explained by parade stories. So let, let's just turn the diamond another time. Number five, the eternal God exists outside of time. Of course he does. God is the creator of time. God is before time. God is after time. Time is a created thing. God is not. And that means, according to Stephen Charnock again, we must conceive of eternity contrary to the notion of time. So when we're thinking about the eternality of God, we can't think of it according to how we understand time. As the nature of time consists in the succession of parts, so the nature of eternity is an infinite immutable or unchanging duration. Eternity and time differ as the sea and rivers. Think about the ocean, think about a river. The sea never changes place and there's always only one water. But the rivers glide along and are swallowed up in the sea, so is time by eternity. So here's another limited but somewhat helpful illustration saying time is like the river, eternity is like the sea. Time, like the river, glides along. The sea, it remains. It is just there. Again, if you have an oceanic degree, I understand. <laughs> Don't press the details. It's just one way trying to get across what is going on when it comes to God. You're in the river. God is the sea. It, it, our problem is when we consider... God's relationship to time, we're forced to think about something that is entirely outside of our experience. And that's why I think God's eternality is a Bible doctrine that regularly gets attacked. And early in my ministry, it was the rise of open theism, it was called. And and the whole idea of open theism was that, um, you know, God purposely restricted himself in his divine nature to enter into time, and now he doesn't know what's happening in the future. He's just like you. He can conceive of an infinite number of possibilities, but he doesn't know how it's all going to pan out in the end. This is just people's trying to bring God into being more like a man, (laughs) So we turn it one more time, number six. God's experience of time is entirely different than ours. Maybe this will be helpful. Let me take you to two verses that sound alike but actually say different things. Talking about the same thing. First is back in Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years 
in your sight, God, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, maybe a little four-hour little time where you're on guard. A thousand years to God, like yesterday, like a little watch in the night. So thousand years here, poetically, this is um, expressing an infinite amount of time, thousand years. An infinite length of time is like a brief moment to God. Right? To God, all of time is as if it just happened. It just occurred. He sees all of time at once. Okay. Now look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's the other verse. It says something similar, but adds a twist. But do not over- overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I just want to focus on one day is as a thousand years. So here the example is the opposite. One day, a brief moment of time to God is like an infinite length of time, a thousand years. One day is present to God's immediate consciousness forever. This is one of the reasons God never forgets. So God's interaction with time, since he exists outside of time, is entirely different than your existence in time. Wayne Grudem sums it up this way. These verses speak of God's relationship to time in a way that we do not and cannot experience. God's experience of time is not just a patient endurance through eons of endless duration, but he has a qualitatively different experience of time than we do. This is consistent with the idea that in his own being, God is timeless. He does not experience a succession of moments. And that has a profound impact then on how God deals with us in our days, in our time. It's why God can show up to Israel and say through a prophet these words, I am God, and there is no other. (laughs) I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says this to Israel, who's surrounded by nations with their little localized deities. Everybody's got like the small g, God de jour, God for my nation, God for yours. And God shows up and he says, no, I am God. There is no other. There is none like me. God is not some glorified man bound by the relentless succession of moments. That's just one of the reasons why God can declare with 100% accuracy everything that will happen because he sees it all now as if it were one completed event. Erickson writes he does not get taken by surprise or have to formulate contingency plans. The eternal God is never wringing his hands. What shall I do now? In fact, it's one of God's great mercies that knowing and seeing all of this, he withholds the details of your future from your eyes. Imagine if you could see your whole life. 
Imagine you were 16 and you could see everything that was going to happen to you perfectly. Morris Roberts wrote this. Well do the Holy Scripture state, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. Could any man live if he saw into the future troubles of his life? We cannot and need not experience our miseries till they come upon us. God leads us along like blinkered horses. Kids, those are like the things that go on the eyes so the horse can only see forward. God leads us along like blinkered horses so that we do not shy at the things we otherwise would see. Okay, so that's a mercy of God that he doesn't reveal all our miseries to us when we're 16 years old. But now look where, look where Roberts goes. Only Christ of all mankind saw and knew the full extent of his coming sufferings. He saw the cross, no doubt, from his childhood and had a rehearsal of Gethsemane and Calvary every time he read his Old Testament. But he, being the God-man, could bear it. We cannot. That means that Jesus, when he's healing the sick and the lame and the blind, can see with perfect clarity the cross that awaits him. That takes us to the seventh point. Seven's always the number of completion. Look at that. The eternal God offers, quote, eternal life. So we have a start, right? As human beings, we have a beginning. You didn't exist in some weird eternal soul state before you were put into a body. That's just nonsense. (laughs) You have a start. However, every person has a start and nobody ends. So we do not become eternal in the same way that God is eternal. It's impossible to become eternal. Number seven, right? Yeah. PRBC friends, that was for you. (laughs) So we're talking about how we have a start and God does not. We don't become eternal in the way that God is eternal because to become eternal doesn't make any sense. That That would imply a beginning, a starting point, right? That makes sense? Nodding would help me at this point. Okay, so every single, single one of you, every, me included, we all have a soul that's going to last forever. We know this from John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, this is Jesus speaking, when all who are in the tombs, all, will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Resurrection is just a term that means you are given a body suitable for your eternal existence. There's a resurrection to life, 
And there's a resurrection to judgment. Oh, friend. I think of this carefully for yourself. Your soul will last forever. This life will appear to you to be just the tiniest little blip on the screen. Your soul will last forever, either with God or in eternal punishment, with a body that has been made fit to endure the wrath of God forever. When I was a boy, I went on a school trip to the Royal Winter Fair, and it was time to leave, and I got separated from my class. I don't know how it happened. But being a resourceful young man, I knew that the class was heading to the bus, so I decided to go out the nearest door and find the bus. And I went out the door, there was no bus. So I turned left. Had I turned right, I would have gone around the corner and there would have been the bus. But Paul turned left. And so I walked around another corner, no bus. And another corner, no bus. Big building, lots of corners. Corner after corner after corner, no bus. An endless, seemingly, existence of not finding what I was looking for. Imagine being stuck in an existence that will never end, looking for something you will never find. When you die, that is like the moment I walked out the door and turned left. The decision was made, it was final, there's no turning back, there's no going right. Now, for me as a school kid, I walked around the whole stinking, what's that building at the exhibition grounds? It's huge. But I walked around the entire thing and I found the bus and everybody yelled at me. That's my existence as a school kid. But if you are not right with God through Christ, your eternity is going to be spent in an endless torment, a forever disappointment, a forever rounding the corner, looking for that salvation that you will never find. Friend, that never, ever stops. Lost and alone in an eternal punishment for your sins. Yes, your sins are that bad. There will be no injustice whatsoever in God when he brings this judgment upon you. Only judgment, only suffering around every next corner and this without end. However, if you listen to the eternal gospel and admit the eternal guilt of your sins, asking the eternal God to supply the saving work of his eternal son to your eternal soul, you will be delivered into an eternal future with him, Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. That is why when Jesus took on flesh and lived in time, he could say without lying to the people, I am the resurrection and the life. He did not say, I was the resurrection. He did not say, I will be the life. He said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And that means that everyone connected to him by faith will be resurrected to life in the great day of God's final judgment. Oh, friend, 
turn to him today so that you can enjoy him forever. God always is what he was and always will be what he is. Here's the reason to turn and to trust that Jesus hasn't changed. And he will take you if you come. So humble your mind, increase your delight. Wilhelmus Brockel, writing 400 years ago, said, Therefore, do not elevate yourself beyond the reach of your comprehension. And do not limit God by your human conceptions. Acknowledge and believe God to be the one who dwells in incomprehensible eternity. Lose yourself in this eternity. Worship that which you cannot comprehend. And with Abraham, call upon the name of the eternal God. It is why Solomon said he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. What's he getting at? I think Solomon is saying you have been built with an undeniable awareness that there is an eternal God. As much as you may want to reject it, you know in your heart of hearts it is true. And yet eternity by its very nature cannot be fathomed apart from the eternal one revealing himself to us. To understand eternity fully would require you to be eternal in the same way God is. And yet knowing what we do know, we can rejoice and we can enjoy him now. Anticipating enjoying him a whole lot more in the life to come. And not just because Not because he's just eternal. He is not just eternal. He is eternally good. He is eternally love. He is eternally ours. And he is eternally interesting. Stephen Charnock said, The enjoyment of God will be as fresh and glorious after many ages as it was at first. God is eternal, and eternity knows no change. There will then be the fullest possession without any decay in the object enjoyed. He's not a cistern, but a fountain, wherein water is always living and never putrefies. Even Big Sur, California, will fade and shrink in our delight, but not so God. Eternity itself will not give you enough time to enjoy him fully or to know him completely. You will be endlessly enthralled, never bored, always truly happy, world without end. Amen. Let's pray together. And so, eternal God, make it so that every one of us gets to that day And make that day a day of rejoicing, falling into the everlasting arms of our Savior. Oh, how we don't deserve you, Christ, but how we cling to you by faith now. We worship you in your grandeur and your greatness. Forgive us for our small views of you and increase our delight in our great God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.